Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade. Hello, hi, and welcome to this episode of The Emma Gunn Show featuring my conversation with radically honest psychotherapist Whitney Goodman as she explains why being positive might not be as good for you as you think. To listen to this episode ad-free and to watch our conversation in full in video, head to patreon.com forward slash The Emma Gunn Show now and become a patron. That's patreon.com forward slash The Emma Gunn Show to become a patron today. Whitney, welcome to the Emma Gunn Show. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to talk to you. So for the benefit of listeners, I've already given you an introduction, but you are a licensed psychotherapist and author. And the topic that we're really going to unpick here today is toxic positivity. And I would really like to find out what it is that drew you to this topic, because toxic positivity to me is just like the perfect way of describing it. And it really is something that that requires, I think, quite a lot of unpicking. I think it's really useful to do that. Yeah. So this is a phenomenon that I started to notice um, around me, I think, just as a, a human being. But it wasn't until I became a therapist that I realized how much we were using positivity as sort of a tool and a weapon with people to convince them they had to be feeling happy all the time. And in 2018, I joined Instagram as a therapist and started promoting my practice. And once I started talking about this topic, everyone was like, wow, I have felt that too. I've always been looking for a word for that. And that to me was the biggest sign of like, we have to unpack this and start talking about it. Because longtime listeners will know, and uh, we're now friends because you're on the show. So I can tell you that I have definitely... Uh, had my battles with my mental health and they were characterized by depression and anxiety. And for a long time before I actually had something as concrete and as helpful as a diagnosis, what I had, I realized in reading your book, I really was able to see what had happened was this um, idea of stop complaining and start talking in a certain way. And if you just keep talking in that way, Emma, you'll get better. And I, spoiler alert, learned that that was a nonsense. <laughs> Absolutely. I think so many people can relate to that feeling. And we do that with physical health and mental health, right? Where we tell people, just think a certain way, uh, journal a certain way, and all your problems will be fixed. So can we talk about, for the benefit of listeners, what toxic positivity 
looks and feels like? Like, how does it show up in our lives? Because Mm -hmm. I think it shows up in quite a silent, sinister way. It kind of creeps in. So I think it could be really helpful based on your experience and expertise to just describe how it might look, feel and sound. Yeah. So toxic positivity shows up in moments where we are feeling distress. We're talking about something that's difficult for us. And someone responds in a way that is positive on the surface, but is quite dismissive and shuts down the conversation. So what that might look like is that you're telling me about, um, an anxious feeling you were having, or that you're worried about a test coming up. And I say, just don't worry about it. You're going to do great. Everything's going to be fine. Um, or if, you know, you're going through a loss and someone says, well, everything happens for a reason. This will all make sense in the end. And so actually this is where I think it gets confusing because that person might genuinely be trying to be helpful, but it isn't. And yet there's no room with which to say that's unhelpful. Actually, that didn't help me because it looks as though you're batting away a kind gesture, right? Yes. I think most people who say these things are trying to be helpful, but in the end, it, you know, it matters that they're trying to be helpful, but ultimately their goal is to help. Right. And so I think that's why we do have to step in and say, Hey, I know you're trying to help, but what you're saying actually is kind of hurtful to me, or it's, it's not helping me right now because I'm not in that place yet. And I guess the reflex to that, to not be toxically positive, is to say, no, you're right, that's terrible, that's really bad. But we, we're reluctant to do that. Why do you think that people are reluctant to actually just sit with it and say, yeah, that is pretty awful? I have learned through talking with people after writing this book that people are very afraid that they're going to make someone get stuck in a feeling or that they're going to make it worse. And so they think if I kind of lean in with you to that bad feeling, then you're going to be depressed. You're never going to get out of it. And all you're going to do is complain to me. And I've actually found the opposite, that if I say to someone, wow, that does sound really bad, or that sounds like it's really hard, they actually kind of like settle into that. And they usually stop complaining because they feel heard and understood. I see. So if someone's saying it's going to be all right, or it's not that bad, or this happens, and I'm just thinking about my own experiences, thinking about actually you then maybe pile on something else to try and convince them it's worse, because actually you're trying to get to a place where they say, oh my goodness, you've really, you've really had it rough. (laughs) Exactly. So if you just believe me and validate what I'm saying, we don't have to get into this game of like, well, it actually is this bad. And, And then I think people do feel very on the defensive, like they have to convince the listener that their problem is valid. And that's not a good feeling. So if someone's listening to this and they're thinking, oh, I'm now thinking about the last three times that somebody maybe confided in me about something or I asked someone how they were doing and they said something and I've um, invalidated or neutralized a conversation when I could have been more helpful. What are some useful shifts we can begin to change about how we respond to people in order to be helpful The first thing I encourage people to do is seek understanding. And this, of course, depends on the type of the relationship. But if you're in a relationship with someone that you are close and you're friends, 
asking questions that are appropriate to show you're trying to learn. So what's that like for you? What's the hardest part? Uh, What are you worried about? Like walk me through your options. Really like a therapist does is just helping you talk about the problem. And then from there, trying to show validation and compassion. And that doesn't mean that you have to necessarily agree with the person, but just saying like, that does sound really hard, or I'm here for you, you know, during this time, I want to be there for you. Um, and then backing that all up with action. So I think a lot of the time we say like, I'm here for you. I hope you're okay. And we don't do anything. And most action is better Mm -hmm. than inaction. So even thinking like, can I just drop food off and text them like, Hey, I left a meal at your door or send a gift card for groceries. Like there's all these different things you can do that are not invasive, um, into the person's life. If that's what you're worried about. Mm. Okay. So it's these open-ended questions in a way, isn't it? It's basically, it's opening up the discussion. It's not shutting it down and it's not dramatizing it or amplifying a bad feeling. As you say, if you ask an open-ended question, you're not going to magnify the issue. You're just giving it the air to be exposed. And that can be a good thing. Yes. What happens with toxic positivity a lot of the time is that it's a very simple solution for a complicated problem that we know nothing about. So if someone says to you, I am so stressed about this you know, upcoming procedure I have, and you say, oh, it's going to be fine. You haven't even learned about what's hard for them. So the other person's feeling like they don't even know what this is, what I'm worried about. And I think that's where the open-ended questions really come in handy is that it's showing that you're actively invested and that you care about what this person is going through. When I was reading the book and when I was really trying to unpick for myself what toxic positivity looks like and how it shows up in life, I wondered how it affects different people. And I guess in some of the other episodes I've done where we've talked about um, anxious attachment or people who've got trauma, we've talked about narcissists, it suddenly came into my mind that actually it can be quite seductive for other people if you look as though you've got all the answers. And I think toxic positivity creates this facade of, it's fine, I know what's going on. And Mm -hmm. that actually can be really attractive because that can make somebody feel like a safe port when in actual fact, they are not. Yes, you're hitting the nail on the head that I think this is the allure of toxic positivity. And this is why we see so many like gurus, motivational speakers that are really all packaging and selling the exact same thing, you know, in different wrapping. And at the core of their message, it's just do this and you'll get that. And it's a very, very good outcome, right? We're talking about like, you'll be healthy, you'll be rich, you'll have friends, people will love you. And that is so enticing. Like, I don't blame anyone for falling into that trap because I think we're selling the things that everybody wants. It's so true. And I, well, I'm sure you have a position on this, but I have a real issue with the guru status. Again, I've said a few years ago, I was really struggling with my mental health and it can be so tantalizing to, and I'm sorry, but he's the king of self-help. So let's say I watch one Tony Robbins documentary and all of a sudden I'm like, I want to live my life that way. (laughs) I'm going to do cold plunges in the morning and I'm going to drop my voice a couple of octaves and I'm going to, you know, I'm just, it can be so tempting to wear someone else's positivity as your own. But then recently I did an episode on trauma 
And one of the things that came up about that is if you're not dealing with your negative emotions, if you're burying them, they are just going to be stored and they are probably going to come back and bite you on the arse. So you best be leaning into those things, not trying to cover them with platitudes or really wonderful like memes that rhyme <laughs> that make it sound like you've got your life together. Yes, absolutely. And and when somebody hands you that script, like you said, of do cold punches and lower your voice and all this, it, it, you can look at that and say, oh, yes, I finally found it. And I can do all this instead of addressing all that stuff I've been trying to push down. And that seems so much scarier than just kind of following this 10 step plan that someone's giving me. Totally. And I guess one of the other things as well, it's always like trying to turn the idea of something on its head. So with toxic positivity, I was like, well, what's the antonym of that? Is it safe negativity? And I wondered, I mean, obviously we don't have to wrap it up in a particular phrase, but I was just thinking actually... There is so much to be said for paying attention to what your negative thoughts, feelings and emotions are telling you and not papering over the cracks by trying to neutralize them with the opposite positive. Mm -hmm. There's there's so much power in that. And I think actually when we start trying to neutralize everything with a positive, we stop paying attention to those voices that are telling us something is wrong in our life. And you see people do this, you know, with their health, with their relationships, where they stay in situations that aren't serving them in some way because they feel like they just need to put a positive spin on it. It's a little bit like diets in that you kind of want to just sign up to a diet, follow it to the letter and your life will be changed. But it's, it's not, it's about how you live your life all of the time that's going to make the difference and you have to be able to go out on your own at some point you can't just be a disciple of a guru or a particular way of thinking if if fundamentally what you're presenting on the surface is different from what's going on underneath right yes and and i think that comparison between diets and this kind of like guru positivity self-help is so accurate because neither of those things take into consideration all of the things that make you a human and all those other parts. And and without that, we can't give you a plan. You know, it's, it's too difficult for someone to just come down and say, all these people can follow this same plan and get what they want. So in terms of negative, negative emotions, let's just really lean into that a little bit, because for me, actually facing up to what was going on with, and even just today, any normal day, I've done a lot of work, but there might be like a rumbling feeling that is making me feel a little bit ill at ease. And I mean, look, I could go onto a shopping app and I could buy myself some leisure wear because that often, <laughs> that often is the thing that helps. That could be the balm. But some days it's like, why do you feel uneasy? okay, it's because of this, it's this work thing, or it's because you haven't spoken to that friend in a while and you're feeling guilty about it. Actually interrogating those wobbly feelings can be so, well, not can be, it's so much more empowering. But I think what toxic positivity does is it displaces us, it removes us from being able to A, know when it's a wobbly feeling and B, having the courage to confront it. Yes. There's this great middle ground where I think we can look at our negative thoughts and decide which ones are worth investigating, like you're talking about. And when we have that skill, we are able to look at our life and be like, 
this is one of the important negative thoughts. Like I need to investigate this because I might need to change something in my life. You know, maybe my boss is really making my life difficult or I need to, you know, take a different career path. And I think anytime we say to ourselves like, oh, I'm being negative, I'm not allowed to have that thought um, and try to shut it down we are robbing ourselves of that like problem solving power and the agency to kind of actually take control of our lives. And this brings me neatly, I guess, onto complaining because what I used to be very good at was complaining, but with no end in sight because Mm -hmm. I was complaining. I had identified the negative problem and I would just complain about it all the time, but I wasn't taking any action. And I guess that's the crucial step. That's the thing that we have to empower people with. It's that you might be complaining about something. You might have spotted that something in your life is not the way you want it to be. That's fine, but that has to be married to action. Yes. And the biggest action I find is that deciding who to bring that complaint to is pivotal because for some people, the action is really just that they want to feel heard or understood or feel connected. We all complain about things, um, just to feel close to other people. Right. But if you're complaining about something and you want to create change, and let's say you keep going to your spouse about it instead of your boss when the problem's at work, that complaining might always feel like a dead end and keep you feeling stuck. And can we talk about the sources of uh, or the people that we go to with our complaints or with our negative emotions? Because we've talked about the fact that toxic positivity can just kind of neutralize it, or not neutralize it, but be unhelpful. But I think there's an element of the people that we choose we go to, we choose to go to, we want them, we have an expectation of how they're going to respond. And there's something about them potentially that we need, whether it's their approval, whether it's them to agree with us. But we also know that sometimes if you go to the wrong person, it can be worse than being unhelpful. It can make you feel really terrible. So how does somebody identify those safe people? And I say this asking the question because I'm a, I'm a human heat-seeking missile for narcissists. So I have a long history of going to the wrong people for reassurance. So um, help my listeners, but also help me, Whitney. <laughs> yes. So a lot of us are reenacting old patterns with different people, right? And so you continue to get into the same types of relationships with a different person, expecting a different outcome. And I think that's when people have to get really honest with themselves of like, what has this person given me in the past? What am I hoping I'm going to get from them? And what's going to happen if I don't get that reaction or that support or whatever it is I'm looking for from them and thinking about how is that going to feel for me? I, I think that's really important when we're talking about like narcissism or people that have been cruel when you go to them for help. Oftentimes people keep going back to like a parent that's always been abusive, continuing to trying to write that wrong. And really the most powerful thing you can do is find somebody that's able to give you what you want. And that also requires you being honest with those people about what you need. So saying things like, I just really need someone to listen right now, or I'm looking for advice. Can you help me work through this? And trying to be very deliberate about what you need from that person. Is it also the case that if you do go to somebody once and you do come away with that very unsatisfied feeling that I can now 
sort of taste but that really awful feeling is that once bitten like once bitten twice shy don't go to that same source again would you say it's a one strike and you're out what I recommend is like after one strike I think then would be a perfect opportunity to try to express like hey this didn't go how I wanted it to this is what I'd like to get from you in that moment, you'll be able to tell if you can ever go back to that person again. If someone gets very defensive and, and is putting the blame on you, um, I don't care, you know, you're being dramatic, all these phrases that we hear, all right, might not be your person. If they say, oh, wow, I did not mean for it to come across that way. I really want to be helpful. And they're actively trying to learn that might be somebody that you want to invest a little bit of time in working on that. Okay. I'm also going to, I want to bring up at this uh, particular point in time, a book that I know that you've discussed. And like many people, I was sitting in the chair at a hairdresser's and my hairdresser told me about this incredible book that had changed their life. Whitney, I think you probably know which book it is, but it was Law (laughs) of Attraction. And I don't know about anyone else who's listening to this show. I don't know if you've done it. Exactly. The amount of times you are talking to a friend and you're, before you know it, you're on the app and that book is coming by 1pm tomorrow. (laughs) But I read it and, well, actually, I didn't make it to the end because I got halfway through and realized I was just fundamentally offended by many of the principles. This idea of the negative thoughts in my head could make me sick and that these negative thoughts in my head were the reason why I wasn't living the life that I wanted to live. I actually felt unhelped by it. Mm -hmm. I can understand why you felt that way. I felt the same way. I read so many of those books um, as research for this book. And every time I talk about the law of attraction, the secret, people always tell me I'm misinterpreting it. But I don't know how you can interpret like negative thoughts are making you sick in, in any other way. So I will just say that I think if anybody picks up that book and has the same reaction that you and I are talking about, that that's a sign to put it down and it's not the tool for you. And it is this, I know so many people who swear by things like the secret and the law of attraction. And look, Whitney, I'm not going to take it away from anybody, but equally, if somebody is listening to this and they're in a state of distress about their life and they are having a mental health crisis, it certainly isn't going to be the resource that I direct them towards. Same. I agree with you 100% there. And so for that reason, I'm always keen to share with listeners the resources that can be incredibly helpful now. I've uh, done therapy. I found it to be an absolutely transformative experience because I was, for the first time ever, given permission to sit with my thoughts and uh, they were validated, exactly what you say in the book. So what would your advice be to somebody who might be listening to this thinking, oh my gosh, I've got live, laugh, love up in my kitchen and I've just realized it's (laughs) not only ugly, but nonsense. The first step I think is just learning that you are allowed to have a variety of emotions. And I think when you give yourself that permission, it opens up another world. So if I have a negative thought, an intrusive thought, a depressed thought, it doesn't say anything about who I am as a person. We all like, I think all of us have looked out the window and thought like, Oh, what if like a tree fell down or a pig flew by and it's not a real thought, you know, people think crazy things all the time. And so not giving so much value to that. 
And in that experience, you can just start allowing yourself to feel different things and ask yourself, what might this feeling be? What would I call it? You know, and getting more comfortable with that. I think therapy is the perfect place to do that with someone that's able to guide you. And I think as well, when it comes to anxiety, depression, not feeling as though you are able to really participate in your life because of your mental health, there's a huge amount of shame still attached to that. But as as you're describing, actually these negative thoughts don't mean that you're wrong. They don't mean that you're broken. And they certainly don't mean that you need to buck up and start using positive vocabulary. Exactly. And it, it can be a really scary existence when you feel like your thoughts dictate who you are as a person and um, that they mean that much about you. I've seen that develop into more like OCD type behaviors and it's, it's scary. I, I don't want anyone to have to live that way. Support for this podcast comes from my Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash the Emma Gunn show. This podcast is what I do. It's my job. It's how I earn a living. And with Patreon and your support as patrons, I can put the time required into research, booking guests, paying for editing and production, booking and paying for studios, and much more that goes into creating episodes of the show. Your support as patrons allows me to create a show for you that's informative, inspiring, educational, and entertaining with guests who'll add value to your lives. Thank you to everyone who's already become a patron of this podcast. I appreciate it so much. I've never asked for you to pay for the show in the six and a half years I've been making it. And all I'm asking now for ad-free audio and some video episodes of the podcast is £3 a month. That's just £3 a month, less than a magazine and most cups of coffee. And the more patrons there are, the more bonus content I'll be able to create. So become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash The Emma Gunn Show. So let's talk about this obsession with happiness, because actually that is the subtitle of the book, Keeping It Real in a World Obsessed with Being Happy. This idea, this is how it always seemed to me uh, back in the day, was that happiness was a place that you would get to and remain. And that that was what life was all about, getting to it. And it was static. Mm -hmm. And what I have learned and what I've come to embrace is that it can be something that you feel once a day it can be something you experience uh, in your week but it is not a constant and it is not static and it, and once it is earned it is not always yours it is something that you have to work towards and make an effort to have exactly i had a similar feeling growing up that at each stage of life when i got that thing you know graduated got married whatever it was i would be given like another bag of happiness (laughs) and it would feel good in that moment. And I think a lot of us know that feeling of like getting to a stage and being like, wait, this is it. Like I thought this was going to feel different. And that to me is the easiest way to remember and remind yourself that like happiness comes and goes and every experience that you have in life is probably going to be a mixture. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Of emotions. Because I think if you're locked into this idea of happiness being a state, a place, that you will end up looking through life, and please correct me if I'm wrong here, but looking through life through the, a lens of dissatisfaction. Yes. I think you're looking through the lens of like, what do I have to do next to be happy? And it locks you into this thing of like, what am I going to buy? What am I going to do? What am I going to change? And it's constant. This is probably a really good time, though, to talk about uh, probably happiness and positivity probably get bundled in together and people think that they're sort of one and the same. But actually, for you, happiness, well, not for you, they are very different things. Would you mind describing the difference between happiness and positivity? Yes. Happiness to me is like we just mentioned, you know, it's, it's another feeling just like all the other ones. We experience it. It's important, but it should not be the center of your life. Positivity, I think, is a tool that we've been given that we were told was going to induce a constant state of happiness. So positivity can come in the form of, you know, how you're thinking, what you're saying, and it's not necessarily good or bad. It's just all about when it's being used and how. Okay. So, I mean, I always use this uh, example, but like it's when I go to park and I will always before I get to my destination, I will always see that parking space. It's going to happen really easily. That serves me really nicely because, not because I manifest, and we perhaps we can talk about manifesting, <laughs> not because I manifest the parking space, but because I've got myself into a state of mind whereby I'm not expecting there not to be a parking space. So my frame of mind going into that car park is that I'm I'm not expecting failure, which can just make, make anyone a grumpus. And so well talk to me about that because that actually I find that really helpful but is that are we veering towards toxic positivity there I don't think so because I think the the key part about what is toxic positivity and what isn't is how it feels to you and what you're saying in this moment is like this is empowering to me this is something I use that helps me it's also not dismissive you're not telling yourself like that you shouldn't be feeling something or using this you know manifesting a parking space to cover up for something bad. It's really just you, you know, Mm -hmm. infusing some type of positivity or visualization into your day, which I think is helpful. So this is a huge thing at the moment, this idea of manifesting and a visualization. And I do think there's something in that, but it probably inhabits in this conversation, something of a gray space because... For me, it comes back to what I said a minute ago, whereby you can do all the positive thinking you like, you can do all the manifesting you like, but at some point you have to take ownership of your actions within that. You can't just, I mean, Whitney, a few years ago, somebody told me to, on a full moon, write down three things that I really wanted on a piece of paper and then to fold them into triangles and then set fire to them and throw them into a stream. And I did. (laughs) Sounds like a lot of work. (laughs) 
well there's a lot of work it was a bit mucky I didn't have a lighter like it was just that that's when I think we get into nonsense territory yet Mm -hmm. yet for some people that will that will be the most empowering thing they could do every on every lunar cycle so this idea that you can manifest your reality without any effort is where I get really stuck like the gears just do not work for me on that would you mind (laughs) giving me your perspective on that and and where it comes into your work that's where I get stuck as well. Um, and I think a lot of times when people talk about manifestation in the traditional sense, it really is just thinking it, believing that it's already happened and living as if it's already happened. And so what that means is that you're not really doing anything to make it happen. It's like, say it and it will be. What I find is most helpful um, through my own practice and the research is that you have to first do that visualization step that's very powerful. Identify what you want. And that might mean um, drawing it, writing it down, creating a vision board, whatever it is. And then from there, deciding, okay, what am I going to do to get towards this goal? What opportunities do I have? So looking at what is my level of access? What privileges do I hold? I think we don't talk about that a lot when we talk about manifestation. And then also what obstacles might I run into that I need to be prepared for um, when I start to think about getting this thing or achieving this goal. And when you go through that process, you're able to actually identify, you know, what you need to do and what might come up. Actually, you just mentioned something there. Um, that I, it felt like in the book, it was perhaps one of the more challenging chapters, which is the um, fulfillment in a difficult world, where it basically it opens with you talking about um, privilege and how we cannot for a second necessarily walk in someone else's shoes and therefore tell them, don't worry, it'll be okay. And that seemed as though it was perhaps the newest element to this conversation of actually uh, taking into consideration so many different perspectives whilst also then being helpful uh, when those people are challenged. Exactly. I, I had a conversation with someone yesterday about this where they said, but everything does always work out in the end for people. And I was thinking like, I have so many clients I've worked with over the years where yes, things ended up being okay, or they were fixed in a certain way, but maybe they lost a limb or they had cancer or they couldn't do the things they wanted to do. And in that case, like they might not define it as being okay. And so start starting to think about like, what is it like for people who don't live in my world, in my position, who have my body, my access, um, can they really manifest anything they want is that what's happening on social media platforms because this came into my mind when I was reading the book and doing my research this idea that there's so much argument and debate and I'm right you're wrong very black and white discourse on social media platforms and it just strikes me a lot of the time that those people haven't considered the other person's opinion or how they're living or what what their circumstances are and so they're telling them they're wrong based on well, if you lived in my world, you wouldn't be thinking that, but that's no way to have a conversation. (laughs) Exactly. That's just like about being right, not about understanding anything. Mm. And so we just get caught in the, the mess of not taking on 
of not having the of not having empathy. So what role does empathy play in being able to be helpful? I think both empathy and compassion play such crucial roles in this whole conversation. If we're not going to use toxic positivity, if we're going to have conversations with people, we have to be willing to say, I will never know what it's like to be you. I am not the expert on your life. I can talk about things from my perspective. I can talk about what I know, but ultimately at the end of the day, you get to decide what you want to do with that information and and how it works for you. And I can try to put myself in your shoes, but I still ultimately will not have lived your life. Even if we went through all the same experiences, we are going to integrate those and think about them differently. In the way that the conversation about mental health has really moved forward in the last few years, which I think is an amazing thing, there have been movements. And again, I'm going to bring it back to social media because I consume a lot of social media. I know you do. Sit With Wit is a huge mm-hmm. account on Instagram. It's great. Listeners do follow it. The link will be in the show notes. But one thing that I've really noticed is like this, this these online identities and these online positions. So over here, for example, I don't know if it's the same in the States, but we have a hashtag, which is Be Kind. And I've seen people with be kind in their profile and who've used the hashtag be kind. And I, maybe I have some firsthand experience of those people. And I think you are not kind. And it's almost as though that hashtag needs to be be kind brackets to me. And so it's really struck me how the way that we present on social media, particularly with these things that make us look like really, really good people, it's actually a projection of how we want to be treated. We need the world to treat us a certain way. So we're saying that that's how we're living, but mm-hmm. not we're not all of the time. And listeners, I'm not saying this is a perfect person who's, who's is acting perfectly all the time. I screw up as often as the next person, but it just seems to be this new phenomenon because of social media, perhaps. Yes. I actually posted something about this yesterday. And so many people were saying like the people who have be kind in their bios are usually some of the meanest (laughs) on the internet. And I actually play a game a lot of myself when people leave a really mean comment on my profile and I go to their page. I know it's either going to say, be kind, good vibes only, live, laugh, love, or some other type of positive quote. It's 99% of the time. (laughs) It's very strange. I feel as though we need to we need to make live, laugh, love, good vibes and be kind. Almost like put them in at their own little pile of these are <laughs> like there needs to be a little alarm that goes off right. when you see them. <laughs> because even though if this away. is what's so interesting about this. Dis- yeah, even, this is what's so interesting about this discussion is that things that can look they're they're wolves in sheep's clothing sometimes <laughs> these platitudes and these things that are so shareable they're like oh look I'm a really good person because I shared this that and the other but actually they're they're hiding something sinister I think that's what really and I think with your account and I think reading the book you realize that once you see the matrix of it you simply cannot unsee it it's so true and and that's where I think there's such a distinction between actually being kind and wanting to appear kind. And that's where the toxic positivity kind of falls in there is that even though what you're saying sounds nice, it's not actually nice. And I think we have to reflect back on ourselves and say, okay, how can I actually be helpful? Mm, Because helpful is the key, isn't it? And it's really interesting what we were talking about a little while ago about validating people's feelings, because since I read your book, 
and listeners will know like I I wear the book as a second skin I like to live these books when I read them especially if I really um, take to them in the way that I have with your book I think it's absolutely excellent and I had a friend get in touch with me they're going through a really terrible time my instinct as a people pleaser maybe we can come on to people pleasers and toxic positivity in a bit <laughs> my instinct is to is to uh, it's going to be okay we'll be fine uh, what do you need I can come round have you what have you tried watching Heart of Dixie that always makes me feel really good <laughs> and instantly it's like I'm just going to fix 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 and I just wrote back, oh, that's shit. Mm-hmm. And it's not just shit. It's shit upon shit. I'm really sorry. And it was so fascinating to me how the response I got was actually really grateful. Yeah. I, I think people are so grateful when you're able to meet them in that place and not try to put a bow on it because it also validates for that, for your friend, like, oh, I am feeling the way I'm feeling because this is a shitty thing to go through. I'm not dramatic. I'm not crazy. I'm not blowing it out of proportion. And that validation is enough to just be like, oh, thank you. So as a reformed people pleaser, or I'm definitely somebody who, if I I can walk into a busy room and if there's somebody who is not happy, I will sense it. And I won't just sense it. It's like the force, like a tractor beam pulls me towards them. <laughs> and I'm like, how can I be of service? Mm-hmm. And actually, I always thought that, again, I suppose I thought that made me a really good person. But it didn't. It's quite selfish to think, I see that you're not doing that well. I want to fix you because what comes after that is that someone says thank you or I have expectations that they're going to think I'm a really good person (laughs) for it so this is so people pleasing and toxic positivity are kind of interesting bedfellows because if you're constantly going around making people feel better trying to make people feel better and saying all the right things particularly if they're a bit wounded or not doing that well um yeah, they do seem to be a personality type and a way of speaking and living that can go hand in hand a hundred percent. I can, I can so relate to what you're saying. And I think we have to remember that we're not actually pleasing the other person. When we do these things, we're really just thinking about like, how do I sound? What am I going to say? Like you mentioned, how am I going to fix this person? And I think we have to flip the script and instead ask like, what does this person need? Um, you know, what are they feeling? What are they going through? How can I understand them better and leave ourselves out of it when we're trying to be helpful and compassionate because it can be this thing can't it is like um i know when people have said to me oh you're the perfect person you're the per- you're exactly who i needed to speak to about this that can feel really really good but if you're not actually helping it's this weird dynamic isn't it because you can seem like you're doing something really lovely but actually you're not and so i wonder let's take toxic positivity people pleasing and narcissistic personality mm. types I mean, that's like they could all a cocktail. All hang out I together don't want to sip on. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> Is are they drawn together? Toxic positivity, people pleasers, and narcissists. Well, I would imagine that you're going to see a lot of this, those qualities of all three in a person at one time, probably. Um, also, more the narcissism, the toxic positivity together, and and maybe being drawn to a people pleaser. Um, but I could see how all of those traits could coexist or, or help support one another. If someone's listening to this and they're thinking, oh, hell, I've shared 
a good many meme. I've got be kind in my bio. Um, I tend to tell people it'll be okay when they come to me with problems. How can somebody find their way back from this particular way of speaking and communicating, which has become so popular and so re- and it's such a knee jerk reflex that's validated. Mm-hmm. How can one begin to walk their way back? And it does it take a lot of introspection? Is it going to take a lot of introspection? The place where you have to start with this, I think, is with yourself, because typically when people say those things out loud to other people, it's also the voice in their head. And so again, validating like, I'm allowed to have other emotions. So are other people. I don't have to fix things for people and really trying to integrate some of those core beliefs into how you operate in the world. After that, I really think it just takes practice of like, I am going to try to sit with people in their feelings and realize that nothing bad is going to happen. It's okay. We're not going to die if I sit with this crying person and don't try to fix it for them. And the more exposure you get to that, the easier it gets. But so many of us grew up in households where your parents were telling you like, don't cry. It's going to be fine. I just want you to be happy that it can take a while to eradicate those beliefs. I saw actually on your Instagram a few days ago, you posted about um, how empowering it is to realize that you can't get your needs met by your parents sometimes. And I think sometimes creating this show, it can be really difficult to have this conversation because I adore my parents. I think they did the best that they could do. I know that they love the crap out of me. And yet that's not to say that there aren't things that my brother and I perhaps have come up against because of the situation that we grew up in. And I just wanted to unpick that with you a little bit because I saw there was a huge amount of um, interaction on that post. And it does Mm -hmm. seem to be one of the biggest keys when I've had other guests on this podcast, like Nicole LaPera or Dr. Tracy Shaw, when we've talked about uh, trauma, it really does seem to be that if you assume that this world that you grew up in, the home, the people that you grew up with are perfect and in inverted commas normal, that can actually be unhelpful. And sometimes you just have to be real about it, still love it, still appreciate it, but begin to understand that there are probably things that happened there, seeds that were sown, that you have to unpick and fix for want of a better expression. Yes. There's definitely this feeling of like, if I say anything wrong about my parents or criticize anything, then it means that I don't love them. I'm ungrateful, whatever it is. And we have to understand that there's this big spectrum of like abusive parents on one end. And then also parents who tried really hard, did a great job, but there was just personality, um, you know, differences or the family was going through a really hard time, whether it's illness or, you know, financial insecurity that can lead to issues with the kids as adults. And I really want to empower young adults and adults to have these conversations with their parents and with themselves and with therapists so that they cannot carry those wounds silently and can repair them. And that will really allow you to, I think, have more meaningful, deeper relationships with your parents as an adult. And also, if you don't interrogate those things, if you um, if you act as though that time those people are sacrosanct, then you are removing yourself from a huge, the ability to learn about yourself. 
if you just accept it and don't look at it, then you, you, you could potentially be missing out on um, um, perhaps empowering yourself or enriching your future and understanding yourself better. For sure. And, and you might then in turn carry over some of those behaviors you don't like as a parent, as a spouse, as an adult, because you've chosen not to investigate them. And I think when some adult children look at their parents and look at their childhood, they might also learn my parents really didn't do the best that they could have under any circumstances. And I can't have a relationship with them because it's dangerous to me. And and that's allowed to happen as well. And then equally, it can make you see people through a completely different light and a more appreciative one. Yes, absolutely. But you won't know that unless you have a look at it. What's the biggest thing you've ever had to overcome and how did you do it? Gosh, that's a, that's a hard hitting therapist question. <laughs> the humdinger. You know, I, yeah, for, um, for the majority of my life, I have had someone in my nuclear family that has been, uh, chronically ill in some way, whether that was a parent or a sibling And so I think that was something that I had to definitely learn how to manage um, and how to incorporate that into my life. Uh, The biggest thing for me was setting reasonable expectations for people and not being disappointed with people when they can't offer you what you would have wanted them to. That is something, if you don't mind, I would love to just ask you about expectations. Um, You said it then about not being disappointed. Um, there's a trauma response, isn't there, of hyper-independence. How do you go for, how do you find that sweet spot between not being disappointed when people don't meet your needs and then going into hyper-independence? Yeah, I'm definitely uh, one that can go into the hyper-independence mode. And so for me, it was a learning process of figuring out what are reasonable expectations for this person given their limitations And then relying on those people in that way and still having an expectation that those needs be met within reason. So things like being kind, being compassionate, you know, checking in, um, things that I think people can do even when they're in a difficult situation and also empowering myself to say, Hey, I know you didn't mean to do this, but this really hurt me when this happened. Can we talk about it? It's understanding, isn't it, that the way that you behave isn't the way that other people will and being okay with that and also beginning to understand the rhythm of other people and that if they don't do what you would have done, it doesn't make them bad or wrong and it doesn't mean that you aren't valued. Yes, that is a very hard lesson to learn. It's always like, well, I would have shown up for them or I would have done this and so that makes them bad. But it's not necessarily the case. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay, as we draw to the end of our time together, I wanted to ask you uh, something that I ask all my guests, which is based on all the work that you've done, I would be really curious about the advice that you could give someone listening. What's a small change they could make in their lives that would make the biggest difference? I really think that having a routine is honestly one of the biggest things that will change your life and a routine that is easy for you to stick to. And that has a moment in every day where you are prioritizing yourself, um, whatever that looks like. And I think that's so hard for parents, for people that are in a difficult stage of life 
that has been transformational for me personally and professionally. Could it be as simple as, and listeners will know, like I've uh, talked about with the habit series, getting up at the same time and going to bed at the same time every day? Is it is it stuff like that? Just scheduling, Absolutely. being aware of the time. Yes, and and having you know you a flexible list of like these are the four things that I do every day for myself, and that might mean I go on a five minute walk, I take a shower, and I go to bed at the same time. But when I do those things, I am committed to myself. I'm, I am able to look back at my day and know that I always did something that put myself first. And this is amazing because this really comes back to what we've been talking about with toxic positivity and toxic positivity disconnects you and removing yourself from that connects you with your emotions, good and bad. And so does a routine. It connects you with what serves you. It connects you with the things that you shouldn't be doing every day, but it really <laughs> cements the things that will make every day better for you exactly I have loved talking to you the book is really wonderful and I think as well what I enjoyed so much about toxic positivity and really getting to dig into it is that because toxic positivity presents as these platitudes these shareable memes and these lovely sayings that rhyme I didn't actually realize how forensic one can get in dismantling it. And I really appreciated the different levels that you went to in the book, talking about boundaries, talking about negative emotions. And rather than just sort of, it's about flicking that switch off, it really does go into the detail required in order to make people, A, understand toxic positive and how it has shown up in their life in the first place, and then how to dismantle it and move forward positively, but not toxically. (laughs) (laughs) thank you I appreciate that um listeners I will be putting the links to Whitney the book everything that we have discussed anything else that we've mentioned it will be in the show notes but it's been such a pleasure to speak to you thanks for joining me on the show thank you for having me Thank you so much for listening. Why not become a patron of The Emma Gunn Show today? For just £3 a month, you can enjoy episodes of the podcast ad-free and in video. That's just £3 less than a cup of coffee for a whole month of the show. Your support means I can keep creating the podcast and also invest in production and creation of bonus content for you to enjoy. To become a patron, all you have to do is head over to patreon.com forward slash The Emma Gunn Show now.